tonight I entitled this message, How Can a Man Be Right with God? Or How Can a Sinner Be Justified Before a Holy and Just God? Now in life there are many questions that we ask ourselves and others. Questions like how to get rich, or how to make more money, or how to live a healthier lifestyle. How about how to get a job? How to improve at our job? How about how to be happy? How to be fulfilled? How to be a better spouse? Some people even ask more profound questions like, where did we come from? And where are we going? What is the meaning of life? And just let me say from the outset that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with asking these questions. These questions are not bad in and of themselves. Principally, these questions are not wrong. But if we want to put things in their rightful place, if we want to prioritize things in life, then we're going to have to do what the scriptures do. The scriptures recognize that there are, that man has needs temporal and needs spiritual, that man has needs earthly and heavenly. And the scriptures always put the emphasis on the eternal things and the heavenly things and the spiritual things. The scriptures recognizes our earthly needs. We need food, we need money, we need clothing, we need friends, we need these things. And the scriptures does not deny us these things, but place the emphasis on the spiritual things where they ought to be. So as we prioritize our lives and as we look at all the questions that we may ask. Um, it, is, it is my belief that one of the greatest questions that we need to ask ourselves is this question, how can a man be justified before God? How can a man be right before a holy and just God? Now in the text before us, we are given a parable by our Lord Jesus Christ by which we may be informed as to the answer to this question and know of a certain that men that sinners like you and I can be justified before God. And because that answer is given to us in a parable, we may ask ourselves two questions. One, what is a parable and why did Christ use them? Now a parable is this, something cast alongside something else. That is, Jesus' parables were stories cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. For a time in Jesus' ministry, he used them extensively. In fact, according to Mark 4.34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. It had not always been that way. In the early part of Christ's ministry, he had not used parables, but suddenly he begins telling parables exclusively, much to the surprise of his disciples who ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And you will find that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. As to the second question, why did Christ use them? Jesus explained that his use of parables had a twofold purpose. One, to reveal the truth to those who wanted to know it. And two, to conceal the truth from those who were indifferent. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees had publicly rejected their Messiah and blasphemed the Holy Spirit, thus committing the unpardonable sin. In Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. 
They fulfill Isaiah's prophecy of a hard-hearted, spiritually blind people in Isaiah 6. Jesus' response was to begin teaching in parables. Those who, like the Pharisees, had a preconceived bias against the Lord's teaching would dismiss the parable as irrelevant nonsense, but those who truly sought the truth would understand them. Also, another question we may ask ourselves is this. Who were the Pharisees and who were the publicans or tax collectors? Now, the Pharisees are separated ones because that is what they were called. They were called separated ones. was a religious sect in ancient Israel appearing in history circa 3rd century BC during the intertestamental period, that is, after Malachi and before Matthew, they came on the scene, also before the Maccabean War. And they thought very highly of themselves that they were the custodians of the law and that it was their business to teach the common man. They occupied a minority number of seats in the Sanhedrin, but seemed to control decision-making because they had the support of the people, unlike the Sadducees. Religiously, they accepted the written word as being inspired by God, and at that time, it was the Old Testament. But they also gave equal authority to oral tradition. And they attempted to defend this position by saying that their oral tradition went all the way back to Moses. Over the years, these oral traditions evolved and multiplied until they became grievous burdens on men's shoulders, of which our Lord rebuked them for that in Matthew 23. The publicans, or tax collectors, for that is what they were, were men who were highly scorned and resented. There are a few reasons for this. One, no one likes paying money to a government, especially when that government is oppressive. (laughs) <laughs> and that is how the Roman government in first century um, Israel was. They were oppressive. And so these tax collectors who were collecting the taxes for Rome were despised. Se- secondly, the publicans of Jesus' time were Jews working for Rome. These Jews were seen as turncoats and traitors, betraying their own countrymen rather than fighting the oppressors. So the tax collectors were helping Rome get rich and also helping themselves get rich at the expense of their fellow men. Thirdly, it was common knowledge that the tax collectors cheated the people. By hook or by crook, they would collect more than required than required, and pocket the extra money for themselves. And as a result of this, this honest lifestyle which these tax collectors pursued, they were rich and they separated themselves from the lower classes who resented them. So as we seek to understand this par- parable, it's good to bear these things in mind. Now, in seeking to understand this parable, let, but let us consider three things. One, the holiness of God. Two, the sinfulness of man. And three, the grace of God. Now, the holiness of God. Now, the passage before us today does not carry the word holy or holiness or righteous or righteousness or even the phrase holiness of God. But if we read it carefully, and ponder its meaning, we will soon discover that the holiness of God is seen clearly in this passage. Now, the adjective holy has basically two meanings in Scripture. That of moral purity, uprightness, or righteousness, and that of being set apart, that of being holy, that of being 
separate, separateness. Now, when this word is applied to people, when it is used of people, people are said to be holy when they are separated by God for a specific task or function. Like the children of Israel, who were said to be holy in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, because they were chosen by God and separated from the other peoples of the earth for a particular task and function. When the word holy is used of God, its primary meaning is that God is absolutely different from all other beings and things. He is in a class all by himself. There is really nothing quite like God. And its secondary meaning is that God is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely morally perfect. And he is free from even a trace of sin. Now again, as I said before, the holiness of God is not explicitly stated in this text. But we have to necessarily deduce it from what is stated here. The parable contains two men, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, with a cursory glance, you might think that these two men are worlds apart. The Pharisee being a paragon of spiritual human excellence and the tax collector an example of human shame. But in contrast to God, both these men are detestable. None of these men were justified by their works. God is so absolutely holy He will not justify men on the basis of their works. Our works do not register on the eternal scale because God is actually more holy than we think. All human works and human effort and human industry will fail before a holy and righteous God. Look and see the Pharisee was not justified by his good works and he rehearsed them. He thinks that he is not an extortioner. He thinks that he is not unjust. He thinks that he is not an adulterer. That he thinks that he's not like other men. He thinks that he is not like this tax collector. And all of this is rubbish when we consider Matthew 5, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We must always be quick to remember, even as Christians, that when we are coming to God, we are coming to the one who is Perfect in holiness. Now was the tax collector justified by his works? No. Look at verse 13. He begged for mercy from the holy God. When men are confronted with the holiness of God, automatically we feel an overwhelming sense of our sinfulness and guilt. And in that hour, all we can do is cry, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, it would be easy to see why the Pharisee is not justified by works and it would be easy to also to see why the tax collector is not justified by works but what would we say if we were dealing with a person like Isaiah whose scholars say was a prophet of the highest dignity would we be, would we be able to see so quickly that a man is not justified by his works um, When Isaiah sees God in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees a vision of God, high and lofty, and he sees the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy before God. Immediately, Isaiah cries, woe is me, for I am an unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And I was sharing with my wife sometime either earlier this, sometime either early last week, because today is Sunday, or a week before. And I was saying to her, 
You know, it is very interesting that when Isaiah sees God, he pinpoints one part of his body, his mouth. And I was saying to my wife that as human beings, and this might be a little a funny example, but as human beings, we have a hard time keeping our mouths clean. And it is the one member in our bodies that smells bad. And we have to do so much work to keep our mouths clean. And it seems as though, you know, we're using toothpaste and mouthwash and going to the dentist and getting a clean and this. And yet it smells bad very quickly. And this is the organ that Isaiah paints point, his mouth. In a spiritual way, we also have problems with the same mouth because as human beings, we, a lot of badness tends to come from our mouth. Slander and hatred and gossip. And so within the providence of God, the member that we have most problems with, with in terms of its scent, we also have the, seem to have the most problem with it in terms in spirituality and you would find that men would sooner beat their sexual organs into submission but you see the tongue the mouth it seems to be the last organ that we can get tame it just when we've beaten the hands into submission to god and the sexual organs and our feet and our eyes it seems like our mouths are like the hardest organ to be into submission. And that is the very organ that Isaiah pins point, pinpoints. And, and so he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean lips. He is immediately confronted with his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. And to us, we will look up to Isaiah and we should so because he was a man greatly used of God. But even when this man, who is greatly used of God, sees a vision of God, all Isaiah can do is to humble himself and cry, Woe is me. And this illustrates the absolute holiness of God, that even the best of men before God are (laughs) despicable and detestable, and they have this real overwhelming sense of their own sinfulness. And we can see that about the Pharisee and we can see it in the tax collector. We can see it in Isaiah. But what about the angels, the seraphim, who are before God, who, who cry holy, holy, holy before God. The scripture says, in the same Isaiah 6, that they cover their faces and their feet before God crying holy. Now in scripture, these angels have august names. They are referred to as holy ones and sons of God. These are beings that have never committed sin. And yet when faced with the holiness of God, yet in the presence of eternal and absolute holiness, they see it fit to cover themselves, not even to look or or to gaze steadfastly on eternal holiness we would somehow think you know they should be able to you know be normal in God's presence because they never committed sin but God is so holy that even holy beings like angels 
have to bow in reverence, recognizing that God's holiness is greater than theirs. God's holiness is inherent, innate, absolute and eternal holiness, while their holiness is derived holiness. God has given them that and they recognize that God is superior to them. So, that is a great truth there for us. Now, this holiness of God should not only fill us with awe and dread, but I believe it should fill us with joy. For if God is holy, and he is, and if God's holiness is a good thing, and it is, and we are going to be like Christ, and Christ is God, then we have reason to rejoice because one day we will be holy like Christ. One day God will cleanse us thoroughly. We will be able to say that we are truly and entirely sanctified then. There will not be a hint of sin in us. So this holiness of God, when we have a right understanding of this holiness of God, it should fill us with joy because we know that we will be, as John said in 1 John 3, we will be like him. We will be like Christ because we shall see him as he is. So we have reason to rejoice in God's holiness. Now let us consider the fallen condition of man. Two elements of our fallen condition are in view here. That of self-righteousness and that of treating others with contempt or despising others. And I think it stands to reason that either one of these would give rise to the other. That if we have the one, we of necessity have the other. That these are twin brothers born of the same mother. That these two were hand in hand or hand in glove, however you want to put it. And in guarding against the one, we must guard against the other. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now one of the ways that we sin against God is in being self-righteous. Instead of placing our faith and trust in God, who is the only proper object of faith and trust, we misplace it by putting it in the wrong place, namely ourselves. We think that we are good in ourselves as human beings. We think that we are right in ourselves. We think that we are strong in ourselves. We think that we can keep ourselves. We think that, you know, I can make it happen for myself, man. I was a big man. I was an experienced man. I could, I could understand. I know how to get along. And on all these scenes that we come along, hearing and the music and the worldviews that we hear and, you know, we, we really subscribe to these things. But we, like this Pharisee, should know Psalms 14, verse 1 and 3. And we should also know Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 18. So, but let us turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 18. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is 
full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a, a portrait of every man coming into the world. This is an accurate portrait of all of us. Um, since Adam sinned and we inherited that sinful nature from us, this is what we look like before God. This might not be how we perceive ourselves to be. Um, we know those who do not believe the Bible, they might not want to believe this. But nevertheless, this stands. This is how we all look before God. Now, behind the nice clothes and the perfume and the nice shoes, the crisp haircut, all the hairdo, and the education and the job and the care and the rhetoric and all the facade that we erect, God sees us and exposes us right here in John in Romans chapter 3. Every one of us is a wretched, unprofitable, self-righteous, hypocritical, and even more, Pharisee, apart from God's saving and sustaining grace. See how far self-righteousness would take us. Not only would we be self-righteous in that we would trust in and give credit to ourselves, but even when praying to God, we would bring it even there. But look at verse 11. It says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Serious self-righteousness dragged this Pharisee, even before the eternal God, filled with pride in his heart, to recite before him his so-called good works. Is this not the zenith of self-righteousness? They even wants to parade before God. The Pharisee here is reciting all the sins that he thinks this tax collector is guilty of and that somehow he is not. He says extortioners to be extortioner. This Pharisee has a far less adequate understanding of what it means to be an extortioner. As long as he's not a tax collector, collecting more than Rome has commanded him to collect and then keeping the rest for himself, he thinks that he is not guilty of extortion and that somehow he is guiltless and he's good to go. <laughs> now sometimes as Christians, are we not like this Pharisee? Having a far less adequate understanding of sin? Do we not reason sometimes, well, I don't put on a ski mask, I don't have a crowbar, I'm breaking somebody else, therefore, I'm not guilty of stealing. As if the sin of stealing was limited only to such an obvious criteria. Are we not guilty of stealing if we fail to give an honest day's work in our jobs? If we are sent out by a person to purchase an article and there is change left over from that purchase and we spend the person's change without permission, isn't that stealing? And now I'm saying that my wife gave me some money a time recently, <laughs> recently to buy something for her and I spent her change, yes. <laughs> and 
So I was convicted of it and I had to go and apologize because yes, that would be stealing. So I, no, you take it for granted because that, yes, she's your wife and she's close to you. And the truth is my wife will not mind. But I, sh- I should have asked though. Yeah, it, it, was, it was dishonest. So I can confess. <laughs> yes. But isn't that stealing? Are we not wrong there? If you have a car to be sold and when we value this car, the people say, well, this value at 10 grand. But somehow we would hike the price up to 15 grand and hope that we could find some person stupid enough to come and give us 15 grand for a car that is only worth 10 grand. Wouldn't that be extortion? Wouldn't that be extortionate? Wouldn't we be guilty before God as extortioners? Now, we know from Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25 that the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of greed and self-indulgence. And these two elements are essential for extortion. It is just that the Pharisees were better at masking their extortion than, than the tax collectors because they would dress up in a religious dress and then they would think that nobody would be the wiser. You know, that's what they actually thought, but that is not so. This Pharisee is so deluded with self-righteousness that he actually thinks that he can come to God and name specific sins and tell God that he is not guilty of them. Is this not the pinnacle of folly? And all the while, Jeremiah cries, Jeremiah 17, 10 cries, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. A very sobering portion of scripture. How about unjust, the sin of injustice? This Pharisee was part of a set that fabricated laws and then claimed that these laws went all the way back to Moses, using Moses to legitimize themselves because they knew that everybody respected Moses as the lawgiver and people believed that Moses got the law from God. So if they could just say that these laws went back to Moses, then it would mean it came from God and nobody would be the wiser or so they thought. Well, isn't that the height of injustice? In Matthew 23, verse 1 to 4, and I, par- and I paraphrase, Christ says, putting heavy burdens on people and of a certainty, they, the Pharisees, have no intention of lifting these burdens themselves. It's kind of like, do as I say, but not as I do. Serious self-righteousness will take us as human beings, as fallen human beings, this Pharisee back in Christ's time, those living in Christ's time, and even now, see where it will take us, even to God to assert our own so-called justice. How about us as Christians? Are we ever guilty of injustice? Can it be ever said of us that we are unjust? I think the answer is yes. How about when we preach against women coming to church or are dressing inappropriately and we might see a brother's wife and she might not be dressed in the way that she ought to it might be somewhat inappropriate and we would want to speak to the lady or even the, 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 the brother about his wife but then when our wives then dress inappropriately we ain't, we ain't got nothing to say and we don't want anybody to come and say anything to our wives because then we would get vexed um Somehow we think that, like the Pharisees, we are 
we are to be the ones to teach others and nobody can say anything to us. Or how about when our children might misbehave and when another man's child might misbehave and we want to correct that child. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then when our child misbehaves, then we don't want anybody to come and say anything to our child. And his behavior or her behavior is so cute. And or we turn a blind eye. And you know the things that we do. And, but this is injustice before God. The Bible does not commends uh, the Bible does not commend us in this behavior, but rather it exposes us and commands us to repent. He mentions adultery being an adulterer. He's part of a set that washes the outside of the cup, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Christ said there were like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. They outwardly appear righteous to others, but within they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As Christians, we have to seriously and deliberately guard, guard against the sin of adultery. Um, you know, before you're married, I guess you might not really think of adultery much because I guess technically you, you can't commit adultery if you're not married. You could fornicate, yes, but I don't think it would be adultery in that sense. But after you're married, that really comes into play. Um, And it's very interesting how at times we might be tempted. And as, as Christians, we have to deliberately guard against adultery and sexual sin in general. Because, and for many of us, it is that sin which does so easily beset us. And so we, we have to deliberately, intentionally, willfully guard against this sin. Um, men, you might see a lady who, is, who you might think, or society might think, is more be- beautiful than your wife. And women, you might see a man that you might think is more handsome than your husband. But we must remember that Christ said if we look at a woman to lust after her beauty, if we look at her with lustful intent, we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And for women, if you look at a man with lustful intent, well, you're guilty of the same thing too. And we would find that in Matthew 5 verse 20. Matthew 5 verse 28. He says, I fast twice a week. Now I quote from John MacArthur on his commentary on on Luke 18 verse 12 as it pertains to this fasting twice a week he says that was more than was required by any biblical standard by exalting his own works the Pharisee revealed that his entire hope lay in him not being as bad as someone else he utterly lacked any sense of his own unworthiness and sin end of quote I quote again from John MacArthur in his commentary on Luke 5 verse 33 quote the law prescribed a fast on the day of atonement but all other fasts were supposed to be voluntary voluntary for specific reasons such as penitence and earnest prayer end of quote now here's a funny thing on the one hand this Pharisee is doing what God never said to do and on the other hand he's failing to do what God said to do 
This fasting twice a week was one of their made-up laws. I think it was that they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. <laughs> we know as sinful human beings, sometimes when we are wrong, and we know that we are wrong, we seek to soothe our guilt with the salve of doing things that are not required. Now you parents, and even though I am not a parent, I can testify to this because I was a child. So this example involves parents and children. So you parents know that children sometimes seek to trick you by trying to cover their wrongdoing by some good deed. (laughs) We cannot think that we can somehow divert God's attention from our sin over here by doing some good work over here because that will not work. And we cannot think that we can somehow compensate for our wrongdoing by doing what God has not required of us to do because that will not work either because the scripture says it is better to obey that obedience is better than sacrifice he says I give tithes of all that I get yet again the Pharisee will self-righteously boast in this work as he did with the former work our savior bore them this testimony that they paid tithes of mint, dill cumin and all manner of herbs and neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice mercy, faithfulness and the love of God this Pharisee boasted of his exactness in two things neither of which was particularly required by the law of God now as Christians we must guard that we do not fall into this same sin like the Pharisees and which would cause us to boast in our own works and boast in things that God has not necessarily required of us. We could say things like, you know, well, we build hospitals and we build orphanages and we do this community project and we give computers to this organization. And you now these things are not wrong in and of themselves. And I'm a believer in where we can do these things for others. I think we ought to do these things for others if we can donate food stuff to people in the neighborhood who are less fortunate or poor, if we can get involved with any community organization. There's nothing wrong with that, but these things are never the grounds of our justification before God. These things are never meritorious to God in and of themselves. Um, and so we need to guard against this. Let us consider now the sin of treating others with contempt. Christ told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And if this was true of sinners in Christ's time, it stands to reason that this is true of sinners today. So the parable is both timely and relevant. Notice how the Pharisee commences his prayer with contempt for others in verse 11. The first thing that comes in his mind and through his mouth is to despise others. Because he's self-righteous, it causes him to treat others with contempt. Notice now what a heart of contempt will cause this Pharisee to do. Instead of calling to remembrance and confessing his sins, he is contemptuously telling God about the sins of others. Now the time of prayer is a good time, a time when we can offer unto God praise and worship, adoration and thanksgiving. A time where we can make our requests 
known to God, but a heart of content will use even the time of prayer to display its ignorance and its folly and to treat others with content even before God. Notice also what a heart of content for others drove this Pharisee to do. It drove him to make himself the standard. The Pharisee could have easily worded his prayer this way. God, why couldn't everybody in the world be like me? For I am not extortionate. I am not unjust. I am not adulterous. God, why couldn't this tax collector be like me? (laughs) Fasting twice a week and tithing of all that I get. He sees himself as the standard and everybody else as failing. Again, as Christians, we have to guard against this sin, the sin of treating others with contempt. We have to guard against making ourselves the standard. We have to avoid thoughts like, if Tom wants to be a good Christian or a strong Christian, he has to be like me. Or if Tom wants to be a strong Christian, he has to come to my church. You know, He has to let me baptize him or let my pastor baptize him. You know, you got to come and hear the word at my church. And I guess we've all experienced that before. Um, as though we had the monopoly on salvation. You know, and you know, as, as though men must come to God through our church. Or through us or through our pastor. So we really want to guard against that as Christians. You know, we don't want to say, well, you know, I fast every Wednesday. And so I'm a strong Christian. You don't fast, and you know, <laughs> so you need to start to fast every Wednesday like me, and that's how you become strong in God. You know, we want to avoid those things because when we do these things, we become like the Pharisees who added to God's law so that people would have to be like them in order to be accepted. As Christians, we, we would all have personal convictions concerning how we ought to live and how we ought not to live and these convictions would vary from Christian to Christian um, at one point in time my wife and I, we, we didn't have a TV we don't even have one now um, but if, if you meet another Christian who has a TV, who actually sits down and watch TV, but you wouldn't say oh godly that is the flesh because oh, we, don't, we keep ourselves aloof from the blue eye monster the old people will call it the blue eye monster you know and but TV is not bad in and of itself it would be depend on what you're watching and stuff like that but we would have to guard against if, if you feel convicted if you feel that you ought not to watch TV period well fine that is not a sin that is that might be good for you and if you want to go that route fine but another Christian who watches TV, you can't come now and scold him because he might be, he might be living according to God's word and he is making sure that what he sits down and what he watches is something edifying and right. And you don't know that, so you can't come and, take to and tell the man about, you know, you commit a sin. No, so I think we want to, we, we, but we want to guard against those things that we don't fall in the trap and make ourselves the standard. So if these convictions that we have are not expressly stated in scripture or necessarily derived from it, like when we do good exegesis, we can see how when we exegete the scripture, it would prohibit a particular action 
then we have no business trying to impress these things on others because it would be unfounded. We would have no basis in scripture for doing this and we would become like the Pharisees who make up all these laws and then claim it went back to Moses. In our case, we would claim it went back to Moses as in it might be something that we think we see in the first five books of the Bible and so we need to come and tell you well, don't do this because the Bible says yeah, so we really don't want to do that. All of us in one form or other, or other fashion, certainly before our conversion and even after our conversion, are guilty of these sins. Sins of self-righteousness and treating others with contempt. And the picture is very bleak. An infinitely holy God, uncompromising in his righteousness and wicked sinners, guilty before him, but thank God that this is not the whole picture. It does not end there. There is grace. There is God's favor toward the unworthy. There is God's benevolence on the undeserving. For that is what grace is. Thank God that there is gospel. But look at verse 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The good news is, even though that we're all extortioners, even though that we're all unjust, even though that we're all adulterous, and even though that we might not fast, <laughs> and we might not give as we ought to, if we come to God humbly admitting that we are these things and more, admitting that what we read in Romans chapter 3 is an accurate portrait of us, if we would come to God like this tax collector, beating our breasts and asking God for mercy and forgiveness, we will find in God a loving and merciful God and a forgiving Savior. Praise be to God for that. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the good news. That those who come to God like this tax collector, admitting their sin and begging for mercy will be pardoned and will be justified. For this is the good news that God has graciously condescended to sinful man in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and have provided a way of escape from eternal damnation. For this is the gospel that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless and perfectly righteous life. He offered to God the obedience and the love that we sinners, that you and I, could never have offered unto God. He died a sin-bearing and substitutionary death in the place of wicked sinners taking upon himself the wrath and the judgment that was rightfully ours. Now, When it should have been a crown royal set on Christ's head, he wore a crown of thorns. When men should have worshipped and adored him, they reviled and mocked him and scorned him. He bore it for sinners, when men should have accepted and believed on him, they rejected and crucified him. 
he bore all for sinners. And Christ bled and he died and was buried. But praise God, he rose again the third day victoriously. And triumphantly, he did it all for wicked sinners. And in that we see the love of God. Now at the beginning of the message, we asked the question, how can a man be justified? How can a sinner be right before God? This is the answer. Humble yourself before God, like this tax collector. Recognize that God has every right to put you in hell. <laughs> Acknowledge that your heart is sinful and that you have sinned against God. Believe on the one whom the Father has sent into the world to be the Savior of sinners, namely Jesus Christ. Believe that his perfect life and sin-bearing death satisfy the justice of the Father and is sufficient to save you. Throw yourself at his mercy and beg for salvation. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted.